Let's take our Bibles and go to the book of John. Again, the 11th chapter, we'll begin to explore this wonderful narrative of Christ's greatest sign or miracle in the Gospel of John, and we'll spend the next three weeks together in this particular passage. While you're turning there, I'd like to welcome my personal family and extended family here from Ohio, North Carolina, and Utah. Glad to have them. And Renee and Ben, are you here? Where are you? I'm just going to say congratulations, because I haven't seen you since you got married. And welcome back. And uh, congratulations to you both. Look forward to giving you a big hug afterwards. And uh, you made it. And you look happier than you did the last time I saw you. So it's, it's working out so far. All right. All right. Amen. Good, good, good. Just keep loving her, Ben. It'll be fine. All right. We're just going to introduce this text this morning. And uh, as is always our intent to keep a reasonable time to the length of our Sunday morning worship service with all things included with your worship and song and uh, participation in two ordinances in the same uh, morning hour today. It was the Son of God, Jesus, who fed the 5,000, who represented himself as the bread of life. It was Jesus, the Son of God, who revealed them and healed, revealed his power and healed the man born blind that declared himself to be the light of the world. Here in chapter 11, Jesus raises his dear friend Lazarus from the dead and proclaims that he is the resurrection and the life. Chapters 1 through 6, we've realized Jesus gradually and publicly became more known in various ways and also was equally widely rejected. Chapters 7 to 10, through teaching at various feasts, and in performing miracles, his personal footprint of influence is expanding, even under the feast of dedication that we saw in chapter 10. But there is his, in his final public appearance, we also see the moment of his greatest rejection up until that time. Towards the end of chapter 11, particularly in verse 53, the most premeditated plan to seize and kill Jesus was underway. And by verse 57, the plan was made public. We'll see that together in a few weeks. When Jesus, who faithfully attended all Jewish feasts and festivals, would arrive for what would be his final Passover, he would be arrested, put on trial, and illegally found guilty as an innocent man. It was AD 29. December, the Feast of Dedication, the last time we hear from Jesus before he goes to the place of John the Baptist's ministry, as we saw in chapter 10 and verse 40. He remains there until the news of Lazarus' illness comes. The timing of Lazarus' illness and resurrection is closer to the time of the Feast of Dedication than the week of Christ's Passion, which was in the spring of AD 30. Remember we said from the time of end of chapter 10, the beginning of Passover, chapter 12 and forward, the entry of his final week of life, it's about 90 days. 
reference the disciples make to the recent attempt to stone Jesus, back in chapter 10, really about Christmas time of AD 29. But nonetheless, we find ourselves at the doorstep of the most significant of Christ's miracles here, uh, which is probably just weeks after the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, probably January or February uh, of AD 30. This chapter breaks up into four simple sections. We're going to kind of announce those at this time and then continue to give a little background to this text before we head to our baptism this morning. Verses 1 to 16 is really just Jesus receiving the news of Lazarus's sickness and his announcements that indeed Lazarus had died. Verses 17 to 37, we simply have the arrival of Jesus and his disciples in Bethany near Jerusalem. Verses 38 to 44 is the miracle itself. And verses 45 to 57, the results of Lazarus's resurrection from the dead and Christ's self-proclamation as the resurrection of life, resurrection and the life are seen and heard. So Jesus has a mailman come to his door. He's a messenger. And he's bearing a tough message. He's carrying with him a difficult message. This particular messenger comes from Bethany. This Bethany would be different than the Bethany of John chapter 1. It would lie on the east side of the Mount of Olives, just two miles from Jerusalem along the road to Jericho. Most historians believe that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, as we've already said in January, February of AD 30. The next time that we enjoy news about the new physical life, the renewed physical life that Lazarus has been given will be in John chapter 12. Well, he'll be in a home, seated right next to Jesus on the ground as they begin to enjoy a meal together. This is just six days before the week of Christ's passion begins there in chapter 12. Jesus comes there again for dinner and enjoys fellowship with his friends. You'll remember there, Mary anoints Jesus. She washes his feet with her hair. The house is filled with the fragrance of that perfume. Good old Judas Iscariot and some of the other unbelieving religious ones in the home take issue with Mary's expenditure of 300 denarii worth of perfume just to anoint Jesus and to wash his feet with her hair. And of course, we want to be aware of anyone who criticizes or who holds back giving to the Lord in worship. We'll, we'll discover that a little bit later. Other gospel writers speak of this story of Mary anointing Jesus' feet and then washing them with her hair. Interestingly enough, they speak of who owns the home they are in, but the two gospel writers never mention her name. This message that comes from Bethany via this mailman is sent to Jesus by Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha. Okay. 
almost all the gospel writers speak of this time in Bethany after Lazarus is resurrected from the grave where Mary anoints Jesus. And two of those gospel writers don't even mention her name. But we'll discover a little bit later, maybe even next week, what Jesus says about this lady worshiper, this lady that adores him. And how critical she is to really global gospel advancement, even after Christ's ascension. Regardless, we see the raising of Lazarus to be right at the close of Jesus' Perean ministry. For those who wonder what Jesus' Perean ministry was geographically, here's a few details. We saw the close of Jesus' public ministry with the last public invitation given to unbelief at the end of chapter 10. Then we see Jesus return to the place where John the Baptist ministered. Jesus would generally remain in that area from the end of the Feast of Dedication in AD 29 until the Passover of AD 30. And the majority of all of his ministry that's recorded particularly by Luke in Luke chapter 13 to 19 is called the Perean ministry. So those 90 days is Christ's Perean ministry. And it's in this ministry that he receives this message that his good friend Lazarus is sick from his two sisters, Mary and Martha, that this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead happens. As we've already stated, we know that in this Lazarus narrative is where we find Jesus proclaiming another great I am. It's another self-proclamation of his deity, only the most significant unto this point. And he exclaims it at the exact time of his most incredible sign of seven in the book of John. So we could say Jesus' self-proclamation as God in human flesh that has power over the effects of sin itself, which is death for all of us. Jesus' ability from eternity past, his divine act given by permission of the Father to overturn death in the sight of all who face it is quite sensational. No doubt this proclamation is a significant statement of the whole, the most significant statement of the whole of the chapter of Lazarus' narrative. And it also begins to point to Jesus' own death and resurrection that would come in a couple months ahead. But the statement made in chapter 11 and verse 4, I believe, is to be noticed equally as much as Christ's great I am statement that I am the resurrection and the life. There's a statement of his divinity here that I believe is necessary to understand as we, again, set up this chapter to be preached on uh, over the next few weeks. Jesus says in verse 4, but when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. This sickness will not end in death. Apparently, when Jesus receives this, this, this uh, note, this letter that his friend Lazarus is sick, he's indeed not dead yet. He knows, we all know from the story that certainly Lazarus will die. Jesus will proclaim that. 
before they even head to Bethany that he's already dead. So what does Jesus mean by this secondary but significant proclamation of his deity in chapter 11? He goes on to teach that this sickness will be but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. You've already noticed that John uses the name Son of God to describe Jesus' self-reference. We all remember the whole purpose of the writing of this gospel from chapter 20 and verse 31. So what is Jesus saying here about he and his Father? It's best for us to understand that Jesus, what, what he's not saying first. He's not saying that the Lazarus crisis resolution will occur so that God will be glorified. He's not saying that. Certainly God will be. But that's not what he's saying here. He's clearly saying that Lazarus' sickness that will end in death will be miraculously tended to to reveal the glory of God the Father through the Son of God. It's not so that God will be glorified. He will. But in this context, it's so that God's glory would be revealed, put on public display. Again, for his followers to increase in their confidence as to who he is and why they follow him. But it will be revealed publicly once again in a seventh sign, a seventh miracle. So those who don't believe yet can clearly see the glory of God. The power of God is demonstrated through the speaking of Jesus' words, Lazarus, come forth from the grave. And he does. The only difference we see between the Father and the Son in this text is the subordination of the Father, the Son to the Father. In their very divine nature rests the ability to overturn the very effects of sin, which is physical death for every one of us for the payment right Paul says for the wages of the payment of sin is what death both physical and spiritual but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord you know this morning we're, we're having a baptism we've had eight in as many months this year we're already planning on a ninth in nine months in September by God's grace, his mercy, possibly we'll have one or two each month of the year this year. And may that continue until we see Jesus. Another soul in our midst is realized by the spirit of God that his own sin has set his physical life on course with death. The conviction from on high and from the child's children's classes that he's had here and from watching other baptisms and through God leading his parents to study the children's foundations books with him he's come to understand Christ and desires to obey him in baptism so here's a boy just like anyone else who steps in the tank behind me to get baptized who realized his sin had consequences the ultimate consequence is not just physical death, but eternal separation from God. But he's come to understand that Jesus is eternally the Son of God who alone can save his soul and forgive him. 
By his testimony, he's experienced saving resurrection power in his little soul. His soul has been renewed. He's been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and will stand before us in just a bit to proclaim such. God is glorified when anyone believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and is saved, but God's glory is also revealed. His divine power and eternal authority is put on display before all his people when someone is transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's great light. The eternal saving, life-transforming power of God changes a life, and that life is put on public display for everyone to see as a changed life. A life that's changed in the way they think, in the way they speak, in the way they act, and the reason why they come to worship and enjoy the fellowship of God's people. God's glory, his saving power is revealed and has been revealed among us multiple times this year. There's a sweet lady we had uh, come up, a lady many of us know, um, back, back during the time of the pandemic, and she, she was supposed to die. They pretty much left her to die. There wasn't anything that was working for her. And so we all got together and had a pretty long prayer meeting together that God would spare her life, and, and he did. And we had her come here with her husband uh, in an evening service, and we rejoiced that, that God literally had performed the miracle there really was no explanation why she uh, was able to be here. And that dear friend, I saw this last week. I said, you know, every time I see you, I, I just see a walking miracle. I said, it's not often that we see that today in a physical sense. But God can still take someone from the, the grips and the grasp of physical death and for no apparent human reason, uh, raise them up and, and spare them physically. I think we have a tendency sometimes, and I think I understand why, to be more amazed at when God heals someone physically as compared to when he heals them spiritually. Folks, it is profound what happened to Mrs. Spence. Can I say this? It is much more abundantly profound when God reveals his glory and his power when he saves a soul and changes the way someone thinks, talks, and lives. What happens in a physical miracle in a moment, God's glory is revealed in salvation for a lifetime and for all of eternity. And he's to be praised for that. I, I hope as you continue to get these new birth announcements through email that you rejoice as we prayed earlier, as the angels in heaven rejoice. It's, it's not often it seems anymore today that, that people are repenting from their sins and placing their faith in Christ. And God's given us a little dispensation of time here to really enjoy that together. And so I would encourage you to find these people that are new in Christ. 
If you get their name of an email and you've never met them, find someone who knows them and meet them. Go grab their hand and say, I just want to take a moment to rejoice with you before the Lord that he saved you. This is the greatest miracle known to mankind in human history. It really is. This is a greater demonstration of God's power than the parting of the Red Sea or allowing millions of gallons of water to come forth from a dry rock. This is greater than healing a man born blind or a man lame from birth. The Lord Jesus Christ is about to perform the greatest of seven signs in the book of John and proclaim himself as what? I am the resurrection of the life. He that believeth in me, though he were still spiritually dead, yet shall he live. And in that greatest proclamation, the greatest I am proclamation, he's, he's offering to everyone in the room an opportunity by God's grace and his mercy to enjoy the revelation of God's glory and his power in their own life and their own soul through salvation. The greatest need anyone could ever have in this world, regardless of what our politicians and what our sociologists tell us, whatever we learn in the classroom. The greatest need anyone has in this world is not, and we've said it here many times, and I'm going to keep saying it until all understand, your greatest need is not food, clothing, and shelter, a degree, a job. Your greatest need is not good health. Your greatest need is not anything that appears for a while and passes away. Your greatest need, my greatest need, is the forgiveness of our sins. There's no one you know that can forgive you of all of your sins, past, present, and future. You would not want any pastor or priest to do that for you because they couldn't do it anyway. There's only one who can forgive those sins that separate you and me from a holy God. And that's Jesus Christ who came to live and to die for that sin. So I hope you understand him. I hope you understand that what we're going to study in chapter 11 is not so that God would be glorified, but that his glory would be revealed and that we would continue to see this resurrecting power of God of the human soul continue to be revealed among us until we see Jesus come. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for just a simple introduction to this text that we will unpack together over the next few weeks. We thank you, Lord, for these declarations of the divinity of Jesus and even the self-declarations of his own divinity. 
Certainly he's making no division between himself other than subordination between he and the Father in the text we've studied this morning. But his heart's desire is so that the Father may be glorified and that, most importantly in this context, that his glory would be revealed. Pray for the remainder of our service this morning that we'd experience exactly that. In Jesus' wonderful, powerful name we pray. Amen.